Bibles, please join me now and uh, to turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, out of 40 million Americans who have enlisted in the armed forces since the Civil War, about 3,500 have received something called the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor, as many of you know, is the nation's highest medal of valor in combat that a soldier can be awarded with. Well, during the Second World War, U.S. Navy fighter pilot Edward O'Hare was assigned to Fighter Squadron 3 on the USS Lexington, a well-known aircraft carrier. In 1942, the ship was attacked by several bombers. However, O'Hare found himself in a predicament uh, with four other U.S. pilots they were too far away to protect the ship, and his wingmen's guns were jammed. It was up to O'Hare alone. And he was close enough and capable of defending the aircraft from these nine bomber aircrafts. Here's what happened. O'Hare went against these nine enemy aircrafts on his own, and he shot down five of them in four minutes with his limited amount of ammunition. Right when he ran out of amu ammunition, thankfully, the rest of the U.S. fighters arrived to win the battle. O'Hare saved this aircraft carrier from serious damage, and he became the first U.S. pilot to become an air ace since he shot down five enemy aircrafts. Today, Chicago O'Hare Airport is named after him. Well, indeed, O'Hare is a hero, and he stood firm even in the face of opposition. He was given the great honor of being a pilot to serve his country, wasn't he? And thankfully, he didn't shriek back in the face of danger and fear when things got difficult, rather, he remained true to his country, to what he was taught to do. Well, imagine he didn't stand firm. Uh, imagine he decided to fly away or to disregard his given orders and instructions as a pilot. Well, he would have probably received great shame, consequence, and many others would have been negatively impacted. Well, of course, none of us are U.S. pilots who have been chosen by the Navy, but we are Christians called to obey and follow God and his word. We are Christians saved and commissioned by God to live faithfully for him and for his kingdom. Yet the question is, when trials come, when the world comes with all its distractions and falsehoods, will you stand firm? Will you stay true to what you know and what you have been taught? Will you stay faithful and true to God? To the one getting baptized this morning, will you stand firm as a Christian throughout your Christian life. And to all of you this morning who have already been baptized, will you stay true to God and to his word? Or will you give in eventually to error and falsehood? 
Well, the main point of the sermon this morning is give thanks to God of salvation, to the God of salvation, and stand firm. Indeed, brothers and sisters, you have been saved. You have a great salvation from God. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. The prospect of eternal condemnation is no more. But it does not mean Satan and his, his fiery arrows won't try to hurt you and shift you away. Well, it's been a while since we've been in 2 Thessalonians, but a while back we did look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 regarding the Antichrist who is to be revealed at a later time. The Thessalonian believers lived in a time not too different from us, a, a well-off and well-educated city, city full of idolatry and sin. And though these new believers were growing and committed by Paul, somehow false teaching regarding the end times, end times had had made its way into this young congregation. These believers were also suffering and being persecuted for their faith. So Paul addressed this congregation in the earlier verses in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, by reassuring them that Christ indeed had not yet come for the second, second time, and they were not left behind, and they were not under God's final judgment. However, for the unbelievers who will refuse to accept Christ, Paul made it clear that it would be a different story for them. Paul made it clear in verse 10 that a man of lawlessness will one day indeed appear and he will come with wicked deception for unbelievers. There will be people and there have already been people who are led astray and condemned to hell for their sin and unrighteousness. This is part of the hard reality of our world today. False teachers, stubborn and deceived unbelievers are all part of the world we live in. And this is the context that we find ourselves in. And thankfully, Paul doesn't end on that somber note, but he continues on today in our passage this morning. Indeed, false teachers abound. A great false teacher is still to come in this world. Unbelievers will be deceived and go to an everlasting hell. That's all true. But believers, Christians, are different. The Thessalonian church was different. Our first point this morning in verses 13 to 14 is simply titled, Saved and Thankful. And that's because Paul, though he wrote some sobering words a moment ago, now shifts and focuses on his thanksgiving to God for these believers. This church wasn't like the unbelievers who would be deceived by the Antichrist. Rather, they were people that Paul needed to give thanks to God for. These believers had a commendable faith, a growing faith, a growing love. And the Thessalonian church, though not perfect, was a church filled with people saved by God, not with deceived sinners. He contrasts that here. And this is what Paul now focuses on, his, their thanksgiving and their, his thanksgiving and their salvation. So Paul, for the third time, feels a great need to thank God for the Thessalonian believers. He did this back in chapter 1, verse 3. He did this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. And he says it again in our passage, we ought always Give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Paul saw that it was essential that he praise God for these brothers who were loved and cherished by God. But why did he always give thanks to God for them? Why? Well, as our verse says, it's because God chose them. He says, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in, in the truth. Again, this was a young church, young believers of only a couple years at most. And here they are called the first fruits, meaning the first Christians in this region to come to faith. It was a privilege. What a privilege to be a, 
to be Christian pioneers in a, a secular region to begin and grow a Christian community. And not only that, but they were chosen by God as these first fruits to be saved. It's not like these believers just so happen to stumble upon Paul and, to, uh, and by chance hear the gospel and receive salvation. No, God predestines and he ordains everything. He ordained that you'd sit in this pew tonight. He ordained that you would eat breakfast this morning or not eat breakfast this morning. And of course, he also ordains when someone is saved. In Acts 17, it was ordained by God that Paul would go to a specific place at a specific time to preach to a specific people and a particular people would hear and be saved. And these people were the Thessalonians. God chose them. He chose them for a purpose, to be saved. Their salvation was not random. It wasn't willy-nilly, but it was planned and executed by God, for God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you, that is the Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what happened in Acts 17. God didn't save righteous people but he made the unrighteous righteous. God did it. God chose these idolatrous sinners to serve the living and true God. God chose wayward and undeserving people to know everlasting life. And it's hopefully no surprise why Paul is so thankful to God then, isn't it? Paul witnessed a literal miracle happen in front of him. He saw these sinners completely shift from themselves, from sin, and to God. He saw a change of heart. He saw transformation. He saw the spiritually dead come to life. What an amazing thing for Paul to see and to know. And therefore, Paul was thankful to God. He saw a tangible example of God's love being poured upon the Thessalonian believers when he first preached the gospel to them. And brothers and sisters, this is also true of all of you who are believers this morning. If you're saved, it's because God chose you to be saved. It's because he did a marvelous and miraculous work in your heart to turn you from yourself, from your own sin, and to his son, Jesus Christ. It was God who overcame your rebellious and stubborn heart. It was God who turned you from idolatry and from Satan. So praise be to God. Thanks be to God. No matter how discouraging and how difficult life has been lately for you, the knowledge of and truth of your salvation can give you reason to rejoice, can it? So be joyful. Be thankful this morning. And in verse 13, we see that God used two things to save these unbelievers. Paul says that they were saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God used His Spirit to transform and to sanctify them, to make them holy before Him. And furthermore, in order for salvation to come... We know that people must believe in the gospel that they have heard. Salvation indeed is from God, but we of course never sit back passively, but we must actively believe and trust in the true and risen Lord Jesus Christ. As others know, this is also linked to the Spirit's work in revealing the truth to believers, and it also contrasts the unbelievers Paul spoke about earlier in verse 10, where unbelievers refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Unbelievers are responsible for their unbelief when the truth and gospel is presented before them. All people must respond to the message of, of salvation. Yet Paul here isn't solely focused on man's responsibility, but again, he's more focused on God's divine work in salvation. It's ultimately, yes, man is responsible to believe, but God is ultimately the one who gets glory for saving us. 
who, he is the one who chooses us and sanctifies us through his spirit. And even more, we see a note of the Trinity here, don't we? We see in verses 12 to 13 that God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they're all referred to. Yes, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in verse 14, but some understand that when Paul refers to the Lord back in verse 13, he is actually referring to Jesus Christ. And again, he is contrasting two truths. On the one hand, the Lord Jesus Christ will destroy unbelievers at his second coming. We've talked about that before. We see this early on in chapter 1 and earlier on in chapter 2. But now in verse 13, we see how Jesus loves his people when it says, beloved by the Lord. We know that salvation begins and ends with our triune God. It's accomplished by God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God chooses us. He sent his Son who loved us to die on the cross, to rise again, and he uses the Spirit to open our eyes and to convict us of truth. God is a God of salvation, and God has saved all who have believed in the gospel. Therefore, Paul, again, he gives thanks to the Lord for his work of salvation in Thessalonians' lives. He feels obligated to do so. It was essential for Paul to point it all back to God. So as we just celebrated Thanksgiving, can you be thankful? The answer, if you are a believer this morning, must be yes. You can and you should be. As a believer, salvation is here. Maybe you don't have your dream house or your dream car. Maybe you don't have your dream family. Or maybe life has not panned out the way you hoped. After all, we live in a fallen world. But if you are a believer this morning, then you have received grace upon grace, haven't you? We, we may not have all our wants, but we definitely have our greatest need. And that is forgiveness of sins, salvation, eternal life with God. So if you want to be thankful for something that is not fleeting and shallow this morning, then be thankful for your, th- your salvation from God. Be thankful for the God of salvation. He alone deserves your praise. He alone can make you eternally joyful and glad. And furthermore, we see the great purpose for this salvation in verse 14. God chose us and he saved us. Believers are called to this great salvation through the gospel so that they may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a great master plan in mind, doesn't he? Again, God is sovereign. He's wise. He's infinitely uh, smart. And he knows what he's doing. His plan is for his people to ultimately enjoy and obtain glory. The believer, believers ultimately are not destined for eternal destruction at the coming of Christ, but again, for eternal glory. They are destined for honor and greatness in the life to come. And even now, they are experiencing shame and persecution from the world, but glory will one day come. This is God's grand plan, grand purpose for his redeemed. There's no secret, there's no surprise ending for believers. It's what Paul looks forward to in our passage. But brothers and sisters, this ought to also be what we look forward to as believers, isn't it? The purpose of our lives is not ultimately found in the here and now. It's not to get married. It's not to have children. It's not to have a faithful church or to own a comfortable home. But it's glory. The fullness of salvation in the presence of the Lord himself. That should be our goal. That's our desire. Death, cancer, sickness, futility, pain. It's not ultimate. But glory is coming for believers. Renewed bodies, perfection, majesty, everlasting joy in and with the Lord. For those of you who are tired and who long for more, well, know that the best 
is yet to come. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The best is yet to come. We shall be like Christ. We shall have his glory in a sense as well. We will be made like him. We will obtain the glory of Christ. We won't be made to be Christ, of course, but we shall be like him. We shall have similar beautiful and majestic characteristics, pure, perfect, and immortal. And this is our end goal. This is our great purpose, and it ought to be what we long for since this glory with Christ. Well, before we close this point, let me come back to the idea of thanksgiving one more time. We ought to imitate Paul in this passage as he, as he thanks God, not necessarily for his own salvation, but here specifically for the salvations of, uh, salvation of his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He is grateful to God that he has saved these once wayward and idolatrous people, and therefore an application, one way for us to apply this passage to our life is to be thankful for our brothers and sisters sitting beside us this morning. You know, you sit beside your, your brothers and sisters and you think about all the things that you differ with them about. But one thing you have in common is your salvation. Do you, do you curse your brothers and sisters? Do you think badly about them? Or can you understand that God has saved them? He has transform, transformed their hearts. He had given them new life. Therefore, you can be thankful that the person you're sitting beside has been saved. We ought to be thankful that God has saved our dear sister Ella this morning. If you're sitting beside your Christian mom or dad this morning, be thankful. You ought to be thankful for their salvation. If you're sitting beside your safe spouse, your child, or your safe friend this morning, you ought to be thankful. You have the hope of everlasting life together. Sweet fellowship can now be enjoyed between your church family. So put away all anger, malice, and bitterness towards your brothers and sisters by cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Pursue reconciliation if needed, and be thankful for the people you are sitting beside today. And this brings us now to our second point, saved and steadfast in verse 15. In high school, I had a mentor that I looked up to. This person had a similar experience perhaps to many of you who grew up in the church, uh, had a Christian family, went to Christian conferences, even took up prominent Christian leadership positions. However, over time, this mentor of mine started to deconstruct their faith and to give in to the allure, allure of progressive Christianity. Deconstruction is defined as custom-tailoring Christianity in a way that emphasizes individualism, self-esteem, and moral relativism. Professor Michael Kruger explains how progressive Christianity includes a low view of Christ, a focus on moralism, not salvation, and a downplaying of human sin. And many, if not all, these things were and continue to be true for my mentor. Many today abandon the truth and traditions of Scripture in the name of moral activism, social justice, and self-expression. We make our own rules. We see the Bible as an outdated fairy tale, a stumbling block, because it doesn't let us live out our sinful desires and fantasies. Yet get this, many, of, many who have given into these errors once sat in church pews as well. 
They grew up in the church. They heard the truth their whole life. They heard of faithful Christian teaching, orthodox theology. Yet one day, they abandoned all that they were taught. They gave in to new and progressive teaching, fickle, flimsy, tossed to and fro by all the noise and heresy of our world. Well, maybe this is true for some of you this morning. Maybe you're in the middle of deconstructing your faith. You're in the midst of being convinced of progressive Christianity. You're starting to resent the teaching of Scripture. You're starting to find the Bible as irrelevant. But friends, Paul's words for us are important. Take heed of his words this morning. Back in verse 15, we get to the main, in verse 15 now, we get to the main exhortation, the main point of Paul's words in our passage. Even back in verse 2 of this chapter, we see Paul already say to the Thessalonians not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us. And now similarly, now in verse 15 of our passage, Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions. The call, the command, therefore, is to stand firm, to stand firm, to stand firm. The logic of Paul is that false teaching and pending judgment and condemnation for unbelievers, yes, it's coming, but... For you, Thessalonians, for you believers, it's not so. You are saved. You are secure. You are saved by God. Condemnation is not coming from you, but glory, eternal life. Therefore, Paul says, stand firm. Don't give way to false teaching. Don't lose yourself to a troubled heart and a troubled mind as saved people chosen by God. The Thessalonians were imperfect but they were actually a good example to other believers as Paul boasted about them in all the churches. Yet, even as good examples, even, even as seemingly strong Christians, they still needed to be exhorted to stand for, firm. And the same is true for all of you this morning. Whether you're a seasoned Christian or a new Christian, Satan's fiery arrows can come for each and every one of you. And therefore, you need to stand firm. But what does it mean to stand firm according to verse 15? Well, the word that translates to stand firm here means to be firmly committed, firmly committed in conviction or belief, to be steadfast. It can mean to persevere, to persist, to be constant and stable. Throughout Paul's writings, we see him call believers to stand fast or to stand firm. In Ephesians 6:11 and 13, Paul uses a related word to the one in our passage, and he says, "Put on the whole armor of God." that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, he says. And as one commentator explains, Paul is using the language of spiritual warfare as he calls believers to wage war against the, spirit, sorry, the spiritual forces of darkness and to put on the spiritual armor of God. And here in our passage, we should see that standing firm is no passive endeavor. It's spiritual warfare as well. It involves an active denial of the things and lies of Satan. We can't give in, we can't agree with, we can't adopt falsehood as so many do today. We need to persevere and persist in the salvation and truth that God has called us to. And the way Paul tells the Thessalonians to stand firm is by holding to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by, by our letter. As others note, holding to the traditions here is explaining what Paul means when he says to stand firm. This was how they were to stand against the false teachings of their day regarding the end times. By clinging to the truth of Paul's words, to, to scripture, 
They didn't miss the second coming of Christ. It didn't happen yet. Why? How do they know that? Because the Apostle Paul, because Scripture tells them so. You don't stand firm by twiddling your fingers all day and by hoping that you will be fine. You know, often in our prayers, we say, God, I hope you will do this. I hope this will happen. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Well, instead of simply hoping, we need to also do something. We need to actively pursue and do what we pray for. If we want God to sustain us in our Christian life and to not give up in this world, we need to actively fight for that. And specifically here, if we want to stand firm against false teaching, if we want to persevere and be steadfast in our faith, we need to do what? We need to hold to the traditions that we were taught, to Scripture. Of course, though much of the New Testament was already, writ- uh, was already written down and established early on, the Thessalonians may not have had a formally recognized 66-book canon of Scripture yet. Yet, they still had the apostolic traditions, the content of instruction handed down to them in the form of words or letters. For example, the book of 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians were given to them. They were called, therefore, to hold to these apostolic traditions, to the inspired words and letters they received from the apostles. Well, how much more, then, are we to hold to all of Scripture? How much more are we to hold to all of Scripture that we might stand firm? How do we resist and not give in to the errors from the LGBTQ plus movement? How do we not give in to the errors of progressive Christianity and to biblical error of the prosperity gospel that so many churches uh, pursue today? How do we resist Catholic teaching? How do we resist the teaching of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that stand at the street corners that so sneakily twist God's words? Well, it's by taking heed, by holding fast to the truths of Scripture, by knowing your Bibles. We often hear the best apologetic, the best defense is your Bible, to know your Bible. And hold here can mean to adhere strongly to, a commitment to remain closely united to. And that's exactly what we ought to do with God's word. When those, when those, of, you, uh, or come, uh, um, when those of you come across Jewish people or Muslim people and they give you troubling news about Christ and they say, Jesus never rose again, well, what do you remember in Scripture? Well, you go to 1 Corinthians, which says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. When so-called Christians who ascribe to the LGBTQ plus movement tell you that homosexuality is actually permitted by God, you remember what 1 Corinthians 6 says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Perhaps even more important, when Satan comes, though, and when he causes you to doubt your salvation and comes and gives you some lie or falsehood, what can you do but cling to Scripture? 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Indeed, whoever believes in Christ shall not perish. Our sins are forgiven. In days of loneliness or discontentment, remember, as Scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In seasons of anxiety, remember that the Lord knows all we need and that he cares for us, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Scripture is our best apologetic, isn't it? Scripture is our best friend and our true weapon against the lies and schemes of Satan. If you're a Christian this morning, then the call for you is to stand firm. 
to hold fast to the teaching of God's word. If you don't, how can you expect to make it to the end as a good and faithful servant of Christ? For youth and for college students, I often wonder when they don't know their Bibles too much, when they're not too faithful in reading it, how will they survive college? How will, you, how will they survive when they go off into the world? We need to remember what we've been taught. We need to remember Scripture. Study it. Love it. Come to service to hear it. We need God's Word. Well, so far, we've seen that Paul is thankful for the Thessalonian believers. He exhorts these saved believers to be steadfast, to stand firm. And now in verses 16 to 17, Paul ends with a blessing and prayer for these saved Thessalonians. And this leads us to our third point, saved and blessed, saved and blessed. In verse 16, Paul brings us back to our triune God once again as he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort our hearts. Our lives, our hearts, our deeds, it's all dependent upon the Lord here. Paul mentions Christ and he mentions God the Father once again. And as we should all know, it is indeed God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for his people. It is the Father who set his love upon us. It's God who rejoices over us. It's God who loves us. It's not that Christ doesn't love us here. Of course he does. He loved us and laid down his life for us. But here specifically, Paul in verse 16 again focuses on God the Father who chose us to be saved. God the Father was the mastermind behind our salvation. God the Father is the one who sent God the Son to die for you. And so Paul rightly zeroes in on God the Father who loved us and who gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. It's because of God's plan, because he chose us to be saved, that we can know eternal comfort for the Lord is by our side in both life and death. And similarly, we can have hope, we can be expectant and have anticipation for the future for our future glorification to come with Christ. Specifically for the Thessalonians, they were suffering and being persecuted, as mentioned before. But thanks to God, they had eternal comfort and good hope, Paul says. As one author notes, these two things go hand in hand. For in ancient Greek society, their comfort lacked genuine hope. How can you know comfort if you have no true hope of eternal life to come? Well, perhaps some of these Thessalonians would die for their faith or continue to face persecution, but they could be comforted, they could have their spirits lifted and, and encouraged even in the face of hostility and false teaching because of God, in light of the good hope they had of eternal life and glory. And of course, this is all through Christ who was obedient to God the Father, who gave his life and rose again to secure our life. Notice Paul, as he often does, highlights grace as well. We have eternal comfort, we have good hope as believers through grace, he says. It was God's good gift to us. Our salvation is all from God, not from ourselves. It's not 50% our good works and 50% God's work. No, it's 100% God. And it's all thanks to God's goodwill and favor towards us because of his beneficent, beneficent disposition towards us as his people. You know, there's a lot of sadness and hopelessness going around in this world. But as we see here, God, through his grace, through his salvation, gives and he offers eternal comfort and good hope. He doesn't offer a band-aid. He doesn't offer a temporal solution or distraction for our fears and troubles. But he offers us his love in Christ. He offers us himself, salvation, transformation by his spirit, the hope of glory. 
And as we move on to verse 17, we can understand that Paul, after reminding us of these truths about God and of our hope, he prays that the Thessalonian believers would be comforted and established in every good work and word. Earlier on, when negative COVID tests were required to travel and to go on airplanes, I noticed that a lot of people would especially mask up and take preventative measures in order to not get sick before a big trip or vacation. After all, there's a type of anticipation we usually have for a trip, don't we? And during COVID, we knew we needed that negative test, and we didn't want anything to get in the way of our upcoming trip. We didn't want anything to stop us or hinder us from getting to our final destination. Well, as Christians, we know and we can anticipate where our final destination will be. It will be with the Lord. It will be in glory where we will stand before him face to face, especially when the day of judgment comes. However, far more important than a negative COVID test is our holiness, our faith, the state of our hearts, our, the moral state of our lives as we anticipate to meet the Lord. In verse 17, we see that Paul desires that we would talk the talk and walk the walk as God saved people. After all, again, our final destination is glory with the Lord. If we've been saved, if we can anticipate what the end will be like, we ought to be prepared and to not allow anything to hinder us from our final destination. Therefore, how we live now before the end, it matters, doesn't it? And as we move on to the second half of verse 17, Paul prays that the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father would comfort the Thessalonians' heart and establish them in every good work and word. And though the ESV uses the phrase comfort your heart here, comfort also has in mind that God would exhort or urge urge strongly the hearts of the Thessalonians and to establish or strengthen them to do good. As others note, Paul wanted their morality to be comprehensive in every good deed and word, to do good in everything. And here we find a moral exhortation for the heart, for us to live holy lives, to be established in every good work and word. Were there false teachings and false teachers around in the Thessalonians' day? Yes. Was there persecution and suffering in their day? Yes. Were they living in a pagan society with temptations to compromise? Yes. Well, they had to stand firm. The truth that Paul is trying to bring out is that they, as the Thessalonian believers, were saved, destined for glory. And so Paul prays for their hearts to exhort them and to strengthen them towards moral excellence, to not give up, to not lose themselves to a troubled heart, to not compromise, not fear the false teaching going around, but to continue to do good, to live upright and moral lives in light of the glory that is to come. And I think this is a very fitting prayer for Paul to give to the Thessalonian believers, a fitting exhortation for us as well this morning who live in a world not too different from them. As Christian moms, Christian dads, Christian engineers, Christian teachers, Christian doctors, Christian average, uh, average Joes, pursue good in all you do. Live upright lives as saved people in your every deed and word. No doubt, if we are called to stand firm by holding fast to God's word, we must be obedient to how it calls us to live as well. So how have you been living in light of your salvation? Remember, you're saved, so be thankful, be steadfast, and know that you are blessed. God created you, he loved you, you sinned against him though, and you deserve hell and eternal condemnation, but Christ was sent to redeem you. He died on the cross for your sin, he rose again three days later, so if you have 
trusted in Christ for salvation, live like it. As saved people, stand firm in God's word and what you have received from him and live upright lives and in anticipation of the end. May God help us all to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, though it is uh, a word that we have perhaps heard before, a, a good reminder. I pray that many of these truths would still pierce our hearts. Help us to see the hypocrisy of our own lives for those of us who call ourselves believers, how we have walked in ways that have been dishonoring to you, how we have lived in front of the world just like the world. But God, help us to remember the words of Paul, to stand firm, to not be shaken, to be steadfast in our position, our position as Christians. Indeed, we live in a world full of temptation and false teaching, but God, help us to hold fast to your word, to cling to your word, to the truth of Christ, God. And for those of, those of us who are discouraged this morning, those of us who are having a difficult time in this life, help us to be once again encouraged and joyful because we have received a great salvation from you, Lord. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name.